Hello. Thank you for joining us and welcome to Pure. Based in Bali, Indonesia, we accelerate solutions that uplift humanity. My name is Ryan Fix and I am your host for a conversation series that brings together global thought leaders to discuss an array of topics around the future of living. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pure Podcast. Today, I have a dear friend joining me, Stan Stallnecker. We met back in 2009 in Copenhagen for the UN Climate Talks, and it's been uh, incredible to see the, uh, the journey that, uh, that Stan has taken over the year with his organization, Hub Culture, and the many different projects within that. Uh, which I will uh, let Stan share more about in our conversation. I know you're in Bali sitting uh, under the beautiful sun and in the beautiful nature there. And like many people, the pandemic has given you an opportunity to maybe rethink and reset. I'm excited for this conversation today to dive into the work that you're doing with Pure and to kind of compare notes about what we're doing with Hub. So can you tell us a little bit about why you're in Bali? Yes. Uh, so I came to Bali in 2018 to write a book uh, and wasn't, uh, wasn't exactly sure what I was going to write about, um, but I knew it was going to be a bit of a memoir. And, uh, and as I arrived in Bali, I just felt a connection that I rarely feel I think the only place that I feel this level of connection is at my beloved Burning Man. And I feel this warm hug and this warm embrace by the Balinese people. And, uh, and so I decided that the, uh, the frame of the conversation in the book would be about human connection. So the book is called Born to Connect. And through it, uh, I speak about my personal journey into connection, connection with self, connection with other, and, and connection in everything that I create. And then also kind of zoom out and speak to why I believe that uh, this is essential for, uh, for us as a, as a humanity to, to think about how do we foster a culture of connection within, uh, within ourselves, our societies, and all that we create. And Ryan, is Bali a place where you feel like that sense of connection is stronger than other places? Is that what drew you to Bali? Uh, I, so what drew me to Bali was, uh, was initially this desire to write the book and just thinking of where is a place that I would, one, love to go because I hear it's an amazing place to go from friends that I align with. So therefore I thought, okay, this must be a nurturing place. And then also I knew that I wanted to be immersed in nature while writing. Uh, and so, uh, so that was, that was the initial driver. Uh, but then what I found is that the, you know, the depth of the culture here, uh, is so rich and there is like a focal point around that shared uh, that shared intention, which is the, the you know their religion and this beautiful culture, and it creates a level of connection which 
I rarely see. Um, and so I mentioned Burning Man is one experience where you have uh, 80,000 plus people that all swarm together around a shared intention and vision. And it creates a level of connection, uh, which is really beautiful. And there are a few places where I found that I, I do find that in, in places like New York City, where there's a deep, rich culture. And that's why that city grabbed me for 20 years. <laughs> Well, this idea of culture and community, I think, is really fundamental to a lot of the work that you've done for as long as I've known you. You mentioned earlier that we met in Copenhagen back in 2009 during the UN Climate Summit. And I remember that as a, being a moment where you were working on climate activism in a time when not everybody really realized how quickly climate would move to the center of uh, like in a sense, our our agenda around livelihood. Um, I think mm -hmm. that in ceiling ten years, the realities of climate impacts have become much more real for us. And something that seemed theoretical in Copenhagen, um, by the time we got to Paris, felt impending, and today feels very much upon us. Do you find that the climate work that you've done in the past is informing the work around Pure? And tell us a little bit more about Pure. Yes. So, wow. <laughs> I feel like this could be a 10-hour conversation all of a sudden. Um, so, when I was in Copenhagen, I uh, was working on, I was launching a reforestation organization with some dear friends. And uh, we were working on a, uh, a large project in Peru. And, uh, and what I I experienced during Copenhagen uh, during the climate summit was um, not only the uh, impending emergency, but also the forces uh, that were pushing against what needed to be done, the need to grow um, as, as uh, emerging economies and um, and the challenges that that presented. And then very personally with the project I was working on, I found out that we had landed a very large uh, conservation deal with the Peruvian government and uh, realized that it was essentially a cover-up campaign, PR cover-up campaign for a large oil and gas deal that they had done with a U.S. company. And so this just hit me really like right in the, in the heart. Uh, and uh, in a way, it kind of, I realized later it sent me into a bit of a spiral into a depression because I felt like no matter what I do, it's not going to make a difference. And uh, unless we, uh, unless we shift our consciousness and our perspective, um, all of these solutions are simply band-aids. Um, and where that landed me was uh, the experience of connection when we feel connected to everything, then the trees, you know, and the environment are a part of us. And when, I mean, I myself, when I hear trees being cut down, I have a visceral experience of get me away from that noise. Cause I can't even, it, it, it hurts me. And that is, uh, that is, <laughs> that's a metaphor for the kind of experience that I think, uh, is essential for us to um, to make this transition is to feel that you know that if our 
if our natural environment, if our planet, if other humans are suffering, no matter how far away from us they are, that that is uh, that is hurting us. And and so pure is an acronym for purposefully uniting radiating essence which uh, in another way means coming together and coming back to ourself. So uh, in an environment where people come together around a shared intention to feel uh, that connection, that wholeness within ourselves, within in our relationships, and therefore to be able to create from that place of wholeness where it's already done in the one and we're just stepping into what's already, uh, what is already created in our mind. And how does that manifest into what pure is now? Because you're doing some pretty cool yeah. stuff there in Bali, but also the reforestation project I know is still happening. It seems like it's grown a little bit like Hub has over the years into yeah. a, a lot of different things that are all kind of like an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so with Pure Project, which is the uh, reforestation organization that is run by my dear friend Tristan Lecomte, uh, from Chiang Mai. Uh, we have, I think the current number today is somewhere between 15 and 20 million trees planted and then conservation projects that span the, the globe all the way from Japan, Thailand, Indonesia to Peru and Brazil. And, um, and then uh, here in Bali with Pure, um, after writing the book, I knew that I wanted to go deeper into this topic of human connection and how you can design for connection in society, which is essentially designing for connection within our organizations um, that uh, facilitate uh, the connections um, with uh, and, and interactions with uh, with our um, with our environment and with society. And so, uh, and so it's essentially like a incubator or accelerator for organizations, but focused on human development. So focused on things like authentic relating, authentic communication, uh, transformational leadership, or I like to say surrendered leadership, and then agile organizational design. How do we create organizational structures that can be agile and adaptive using awesome new technologies um, that have been brought forth by distributed ledger or blockchain technology. Very cool. Um, and tell us about the project that you're building in Bali, like the, the space. Yeah. Sure. So uh, I'm sitting in a space right now. It's, uh, it's a beautiful property sitting about 15 minutes to the south of Ubud, um, pretty centrally located to uh, a lot of the cool and fun hotspots were 10 minutes from one of the best surfing breaks in Bali. And uh, we, have, uh, we have 19 beds and it was intended as a place to attract uh, a global audience of visionary entrepreneurs and creatives that were creating organizations that uh, were designed for connection and looking for a nurturing environment to do that in. Um, and, then, uh, and then we would 
be kind of hosts and facilitators of those conversations and then also connecting them with uh, a wellness community um, and a lifestyle that was nurturing for the development of their organizations. Obviously, we weren't planning for Corona, um, which, uh, which landed uh, less than 30 days after we finished our renovations. And so, uh, and so we've, uh, we've shifted our, uh, our current focus with this property here in Bali, not our global strategy, but uh, the property here in Bali is now focused on attracting that same audience, but uh, of, uh, of Indonesian descent. So it's all it's so the program is for aspiring Indonesian change agents, social entrepreneurs and creatives. You know, I feel like there's so much going on in Bali, um, especially since the pandemic. It feels like it's one of the refuges that people have found themselves in and a place that a lot of talent has kind of migrated to because of the lifestyle and the, the community aspects that are kind of embedded in Bali, but which are essentially a reflection of the deeper, older culture that there. Uh, it just seems to be attracting a lot of smart, interesting people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, when I, uh, so I, I, I spent two decades in New York in, and then after that uh, spent some time in London before I came to Bali. And in those two places, it felt uh, really nurturing that I was able to have uh, a steady uh, flow of conversations and community with visionary creatives and individuals. Um, and that was what kept me in these busy cities. But as I got older, I was looking for a lifestyle that was a little bit more relaxing and connected to nature. Um, but there was this part of me that felt like, but I'm going to miss those connections and those inspiring conversations. And what I have found in Bali is to your point, it is such an attractor of incredible visionary entrepreneurs, creatives, philosophers, um, wellness professionals. I mean, I, I, I am so inspired by the people that I meet here and that Bali attracts. And yes, it is very much because of this deep, rich culture that the Balinese people have created uh, that uh, is such a hospitable environment for us to, to create in. And then I guess one more thing that I'll say is that I feel like Bali is a natural incubator. And what I mean by that is that the energy here is very, it's an, it, it has an amplification energy. Um, and so uh, in, a, in some cases, I've seen with many people that are coming with, you know, some, you know, let's say denser or darker energy that Bali will spit them out very quickly. You know, they'll get in accidents, scooter accidents, things like that, and then they'll be out. Um, but for people that are, um, that, you know, have a clear vision and they're grounded, it feels like Bali just amplifies that energy. And you can, uh, I can attribute that to the culture, but I can also contribute it to just the rich lands. I mean, it's a volcanic island. You have this very, very powerful uh, energy that's, for me, quite palpable. You know, I feel like being in Kauai, there's a similar kind of <clears throat> energy here where people, First of all, it attracts very interesting people who are 
focused on a lot of different things, but also have roots from big cities like San Francisco or LA or New York. <clears throat> and then there is a kind of depth of nature that you can connect to here that is really, really beautiful. And it actually impacts the way that you tend to think about things because I do think that being immersed in nature creates different thought ways and different thinking patterns that manifest into the work that you're creating and actually affect the work that's being done. It's really, I think, extremely important as we build the future, especially from a coding standpoint, to be able to imbue some of the projects that are being created with at least a, a nod toward nature. And, you know, certainly Kauai is nature squared. I mean, it's just really incredibly deep and, and vibrant nature and it surrounds you and it kind of impacts everything that you do. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, uh, do you want to switch gears a little bit and speak a little bit about some of the things that you're up to right now? Yeah, sure. Um, I love this because we're kind of doing a joint podcast for Pure and for Hub, which is the ultimate in collaboration. And it's a little bit of a balance between like, hey, I want to hear about everything you got going on in Bali. And you probably want to hear about the things that we're doing within Hub Culture. Um, you know, for us, the pandemic was a chance to reflect on what we do because we tend to typically create a number of locations that our members can visit around the world each year, pop-up spaces. And we've always been very focused on space, whether it was you visiting us in Copenhagen 10 years ago or more than 60 locations since all around the world. And I normally wouldn't have been able to spend time in Kauai because I'm usually between London and Bermuda and 10 other places. But I came to Kauai in the beginning of the pandemic and I expected to stay a week for a board meeting for another company. And then it's a year later and here I am. And one of the reasons that we stayed or that I stayed was that we started working on quarantine technology for the Bermuda government to help them manage arrivals into the country of Bermuda. And we licensed that technology from Hong Kong and then we started building it and rolled it out in Bermuda. But because I was in Hawaii, we also started looking at how it could help Hawaii be able to stay safe in the pandemic. And so we worked with the county of Kauai to launch this idea of resort bubbles using our technology to manage the quarantine as well as test and vaccine um, verifications and, and other tools inside a digital app and a wearable. And that's turned out to be <clears throat> extremely successful. Right now, Kauai has one of the world's lowest rates of COVID occurrence. There's no community spread on the island. And everything is very much tied toward visitors coming in, quarantining, testing out, and then being able to go out on, and around the island. So life here has been extremely, um, you know, and honestly amazing over the course of the last year because we haven't had the impacts of COVID, knock on wood, um, to date. And what, what has suffered really is the economy. And so we're working right now with the county on a new project called Coalition, which is meant to be an open source initiative to look at helping the community generate stimulus for projects around the island. 
and that's a system that we hope to scale into other locations. And the idea is to really get communities working together to amplify local resilience and benefits of local economies. And this ties into things like VAN, our digital currency, and Ultra, our exchange, because the local reward currency that will be used to power this program will also become something that interfaces to the rest of the Venn economy. You know, Ryan, you know Venn very well, but for almost 15 years now, we've been operating the world's most stable digital currency, which is backed by carbon. So it's really an environmental asset. And we've been able to save tens of thousands of acres of Amazon rainforest using the Venn. And increasingly, we've been developing tokenization tools that help us think about new ways to manage externalities. And so what I, that's a complicated of, way of saying, looking at tokenization or these tokens to be able to do things uh, other than just money, the way that Venn does. And so we have Ultra Carbon, which is focused on supporting the carbon markets. There's Ultra Reserve, which is really kind of like pure project about saving and protecting and even rewilding um, forests. And then we're working on probably an ocean token that I think we'll launch this summer. And then a wide variety of other things, NFTs and real estate and different ways to give economic vitality and access to our community around subjects and things that they care about. So it's been a really busy year. And at the end of it, like we haven't done the hubs and been able to see people the way that we normally would within our community. And we're very physically minded presently you know in front of your face kind of social network but we've also been able to use the time during the pandemic to recreate a lot of what we do we built a virtual reality city called emerald city and that's where we are recording today and every week or so or every couple of weeks we're launching a new building in emerald city that can do new things and then that layer of identity for place is plugging into hub id and our layers of identity for people and places and things that are all connected together wow <laughs> it's been really as i mentioned it's been really incredible to to see the journey over over this past uh decade i mean i i, I don't even know if then was launched back in 2009 um it was. It, but, it began uh, July 4th, 2007. So we were using it in Copenhagen. Wow. Well, I, I, but, but over the years, it's just been incredible to see how, how this, uh, what do I want to say? I mean, I, I recognize in you this, this visionary quality that I oftentimes, and I say this with humbleness that I see in myself, which is like, you know, seeing things, you know, like a little bit ahead. Um, and, and I just applaud, applaud you and just like, you know, just going, you know, just pushing forward with these things. And then, and then the world catches up a bit, you know, and it's like with Ven, it feels like it was, I think I think you've even said it was one of the first digital currencies, you know, and here we are, you know, many years later where, you know, this this whole movement is now massive. And uh, and so it's yeah. 
Well, you know, the big difference is that Venn came before the blockchain or before Bitcoin. And so the, the core architecture for Venn is connected to, um, you know, just fundamentally older technologies. And we've had to learn how to bring Venn into the new world, which is decentralized and blockchained. And we've built integrations. But, you know, there are some practical limitations that have existed for us with Venn, namely regulatory. And... So, you know, we're kind of straddling the old world and the new world with a lot of things, with, with Ben in particular. And that makes it always um, a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, this, uh, this straddling of the new and the old and then, you know, and then creating, creating these new systems that work more efficiently and have more incentive that attract more people to integrate with them and ultimately hopefully to make the old system obsolete and uh and so yeah it's just been awesome to see how this ecosystem that you've been building is is growing and engaging with more people and uh and um is really showing a you know a exciting new way forward where we can interact i mean with emerald city even to interact you know in a more you know virtual yet realistic way you know we're using this beautiful technology to still feel very connected and within this new virtual ecosystem where we can start to play in different these different buildings which i'm excited to see well you know i'm curious ryan how do you see the, this new world emerging i know that you've also been involved in a lot of crypto related things and the DeFi mm -hmm. and NFT space have been exploding. How do you see that fitting yeah. into your world with Pure? And how do you, like when you talk about this idea of fostering connection between people, what's your goal in terms of the vision that you see? Because if you're drawing down from, you know, wherever, the ether or the cloud or another dimension, your vision for the future that you're going to inhabit, can you paint us a picture of what that looks like for you and what that feels like? Yes, I'll do my best. Um, so I read, uh, I read this book a while back uh, called Thank You for Being Late. And, uh, and there was this line in the book that has stuck with me ever since, uh, or this phrase, dynamic stability, the ability to feel grounded and connected in a world of dynamic and constant change. And my journey and my experience has taught me that the only way to feel that level of connection or uh, to feel that stability in constant change is within myself, within my body. When I feel safe in my body, I can deal with any level of complexity and change because I know that I am safe. Uh, you know, and so, so when you say that to me, dynamic stability feels like flow. And I feel like I'm at my yeah. best when I'm achieving flow state and then uh -huh. achieving the closest I can get to synchronicity. And when I dip out of synchronicity and dip out of flow is when the turbulence starts and everything starts to go a little wobbly. And so I think that in a weird way, a lot of people that I've talked to over the last year have been experiencing the same thing. We have to, we're, it's almost like the universe 
is forcing us to live in flow state now because nobody's been able to make any plans for a year. And everybody has been forced by circumstances beyond their control to live in a much more present way. Like we haven't been able to plan a conference six months out. We haven't been able to to understand even being able to travel or to move from our homes a few weeks out. And I think that this has forced our culture to actually almost stay in flow state in order to survive psychologically. Because I think there's a lot of psychological trauma that has been, you know, experienced by many people around the world in the last year, a lot of hardship, a lot of people have been pushed into um, stress or poverty, or they've lost loved ones. And that's a really tough thing. And I feel like the people who are coping with all of that the best are the people who understand how to find synchronicity and find flow. And it kind of comes from surrender. You know, it comes from saying like, okay, I understand I'm not in charge and I'm going to feel my way in this second to where I'm supposed to be. And then based on exactly right now and not my worries about the past or my concerns about the future, try to exist in this flow state. And then you're almost on this like narrow wire or this narrow road but once you get stable on it you can move actually pretty fast because you're looking for these signals left right center that are keeping you in flow and for me it's working i gotta be honest like if if i'm in flow things are good when i move out of flow things fall apart fast Mm. wow i'm like my whole body's activating as you're talking um i'm i'm remembering uh Another book, I think it's called Waiting for Superman, and it's about flow state. And there was uh, a part of the book where they were talking about uh, a professional uh, climber that uh, was climbing the face of a mountain, I believe, in Argentina. And if any one wrong reach was wrong, they were done. But there is a level of flow state that a professional athlete gets, whether it's riding a monster wave or climbing a mountain, where uh, even though there is the potential for extreme danger and even death, when you're in that absolute flow state, which takes practice and training, which gives that level of trust or knowingness, that we can make all of those moves and we can adapt and shift within an instant. It's not even a thought process. We're just moving with the flow. And, but I think it's um, much harder to do that in wider life, right? Like you can do it during a, a period of like intense focus, like producing a sport or climbing a mountain. But to apply that to your wider life, I feel like it takes uh, some practice. And I think that the way to do that is through meditation because getting through mm-hmm. meditation is the pathway i think to be able to find what flow feels like because it is sort of to me like knowing what a feeling is and then from that feeling seeking to match that feeling um Mm -hmm. i don't know do you find flow the same way like how do you identify when you're in flow so you know i am uh i am someone that uh, has such an active nervous system I was raised as a as a professional gymnast so I like I am just like I'm I have a lot of energy moving through me and sitting still and calming the thoughts um, doesn't is really challenging for me so I find for myself 
that my meditative state happens when I'm in movement. So I am a lover of, I love to dance. I dance all the time. And that when I'm dancing, I'm not thinking. When I am kite surfing, I'm, you know, I'm in that flow state. I'm in that meditative state. And so, I mean, that's been, those have been, movement is my meditation. Um, but you mentioned surrender. And I think that that's another part of it because so much of our society and upbringing teaches us that uh, there's not enough out there. We're in a scarcity-based uh, mental sphere and you know our global economic system that we've designed is one based upon artificial scarcity and not enoughness. And so, of course, we're born into this world where we feel like in order for us to have somebody, you know, we have to take. Um, and, uh, and so it's this survivalist mentality. And then, you know, and then when we think about creating organizations, we think about, you know, what's the business strategy? Um, we have to set the strategy. We have to work hard. We have to be diligent. And that has worked in many ways, but more and more in a rapidly adapting world, that's not working. And those organizations that aren't agile and adaptive um, are crashing and will continue to crash more and more um, all the way up to the top, governments, banks. And so uh, the opportunity is actually one of surrender. So what does it look like to lead from surrender, to lead from that place of deep trust, where, which comes from, you know, as you said, meditation and flow state? Um, that when we have that level of trust, we can surrender to what is. We can let go of the attachment to how we think it needs to be, and we can listen to the signals, and we can adapt to those signals in a more in a more dynamic way. And that is what I'm excited about in terms of creating the organizations of the future. You know, the leader is actually sitting at the bottom of the pyramid, helping everybody else to rise, you know, creating, you know, they're the space holder, holding the vision, uh, and they're the guardian and the custodian, but it's not about them. It's about this change that is being brought about through them uh, and through the people that swarm together around them very much in the way that I see how you're leading more and more. Well, you know, I think it reminds me, you mentioned Burning Man earlier, and, you know, I'm a burner too, and I feel like a lot of people who are at the forefront of building the new world, they come from the crypto world or the burner world, and these two things have so much overlap in, in and of themselves. But it reminds me of a few years ago out in the playa, there was a big sign that said, let the signals be your guides. And it was a beautiful sign, and I, it was one of my favorite things I've ever seen at Burning Man because it's really such a true thing and it's hard to kind of understand what that means until you understand what it means so when you say that like looking for the signals i totally get what you're saying but i don't feel like that is something that default society totally understands because if you're trying to parse the signals there are a lot of signals coming through and i think there is this sense of like figuring out which are the signals that you should be following Ooh, yeah. for flow state and that's where the skill and the practice needs to come, especially from training your own mind. Because if you don't have the capacity to understand and parse the signals, I think it's pretty um, likely that you become overwhelmed and, and you, 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 it's, it 
it's hard to follow that. And, and it just takes practice, right? I mean, it really is just a yeah. practice. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, it really. I mean, I think of, uh, so I love this phrase, everything is feedback, which is just another version of the same phrase. And so if everything is, if everything is feedback, then there's a lot of stimulus. There's a lot of signals out there. And so uh, for me, for me, where the practice comes in is in the pattern recognition. It's like, oh, I keep, I, I keep seeing this same level of feedback in my life. You know, maybe that's a sign that there's something inside of myself that I can shift uh, in order to uh, in order to uh, remove any kind of resistance or block uh, to, you know, the direction that uh, that I desire to be flowing in. Um, but, yeah, it's a life for me. It's a life. It's a life practice that will never end. How do you find, um, Ryan, that you're communicating that with your community? Like, are people in the pure context buying into that? Or are you trying to help people build their own journey and their own vision and their own projects? Um, so I am, I am interested in attracting individuals that are sensing that uh, the way that they have been operating and creating is not nurturing for them. And they know that there is another way and they're excited by this, uh, this other way um, that, um, that, you know, maybe I'm communicating and many others are communicating and that, uh, that pure becomes one place where they can come and nurture this part of themselves. So it's very much thought of as an accelerator an attractor and an accelerator for that audience. Um, and, and, you know, and, 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 having that experience inside of themselves so that when they, I believe that we're all born to create. So when it comes to creating that thing, that it's coming from that place of wholeness, it's not coming from lack. Um, so that it can flow with ease. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Cool. I think the last time I saw you um, was in. Were you in New Mexico at the conscious or at the retreat? Um, collective legacy. Collective legacy. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of curious, like whether or not you think these networks are destined to do something larger than themselves, because there are a lot of networks now: Nexus and um, Summit Series and Pure and Unit Ventures is doing some cool things in, mm -hmm. in, in Bali. And, um, you know, all around, it feels like everyone is now trying to develop their own network. And I think a couple of years ago, I had this sort of insight that it's not enough to just build a network. You have to figure out how your network is going to be a gear in a much larger machine and synchronize. Mm -hmm. um, and 
if we can't synchronize the gears, then the larger machine can never really work because it's just going to be, you know, constantly stuck. And so part of that comes down to resource, right? Because the way that we allocate and find resources, i.e. money or, you know, food or any of a number of other things is dependent a little bit still on scarcity. And you and I are relatively fortunate that we've been able to build in the world of technology, which has given us opportunities to um, kind of be at the forefront of some of this thinking. But there are millions and millions of people who feel disenfranchised from that, who don't have the capacity to build a network, let alone synchronize a network, and are looking for meaning and looking for membership. So I'm curious, like, what advice you would have for people who are building networks who tend to be probably the type of people who would listen to the Chronicles or maybe be listening to your podcast. But yeah. how, do, how do we extend that out so that we can be inclusive towards everyone? Because there are limited resources. There are, you know, not everybody gets to be in Bali, right? I mean, so theoretically, you're not going to get 8 billion people in, into that environment. So we have to build our own Bali. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A um, couple things that come to mind that I want to touch on in response. So the first is that I have been recognizing uh, a similar uh, kind of response when I ask, uh, when I ask of people that uh, I see as, as, as brilliant visionaries, what are the things that we need to be doing today in order to, uh, to bring about this world that we all know and feel is possible, but we cannot yet see in the, in the, in the physical form? And the response is essentially the same uh, or a different version of the same thing, which is bring groups of people together to create more coherence. And the solutions will come from though from there, and those solutions will uh, will ripple out into the world. And so, um, and so the uh, another way of saying that is, you know, there will you know. So with me, it's pure bringing together a small group of people around a shared vision. With you, it's hub culture. And when I say small, I mean small in terms uh, in terms of what it looks like on a global scale. Um, but then, you know, these groups come together around a shared vision. They share ideas um, in, within a safe environment. And, and then those ideas or those solutions, if they resonate, other people will copy them and they will propagate out into the world. And that's how, you know, this better future is created. And... So this leads to the second point, which is the resource side of things, which is how do we share resource more efficiently? And you know, the, the project that you mentioned uh, earlier, the coalition, and there are other projects uh, like this, like Haifa Earth, which are uh, essentially resource governance uh, platforms using uh, distributed ledger technology or blockchain technology to uh, to recognize the fact that, okay, so maybe we have an economic system that is scarcity-based. Um, but in terms of resource, 
We all have skills. We live in a planet that is renewable and regenerative, and there is resource there. The limiting factor is the man-made design of the system to share those resources. So with these new tools like Venn and other alternative currency mechanisms and these resource allocation platforms like the coalition, we have the ability to to share our resources with one another and co-create with one another uh, in a new economic sphere and space. And that is something that I'm super fascinated by. And I, I am too. I, and I think it really goes really deep into what's happening with blockchain and crypto. Because, I mean, out of almost nowhere, currently, probably one, 1. 1.2, 1. $1.3 trillion dollars of value has been created out of human ingenuity um, with the blockchain and, and the many thousands of businesses that have been launched as a result of, you know, one person's kind of idea um, mm -hmm. implemented into, into tech. And so it's very interesting that this idea that we can continue to grow new forms of value if we choose to. And, and we can actually allocate resources in ways that are renewable and regenerative. Um, and and I, I think this is the future. Like we have to figure out how to solve climate. We have to figure out how to bring everyone out of poverty. We have to figure out how to educate girls across the developing world. We have to do so many things. I always say there's, there's no shortage of work to do. There's just often a shortage of jobs, right? And so that actually just allocates uh, some kind of uh, signal that we're misallocating our intentions and our resources. Because if there's all this work to do and there aren't jobs to get it done, there's a gap in the system that's preventing a form of efficiency. Because an efficient system would look at the work that needs to be done and then allocate jobs to be able to get that done. And there's a gap there. And I think a lot of it has to do with us not understanding or valuing the commons because the commons is exceptionally important. And in smaller societies, communities were able to manage a commons, often especially in indigenous communities, fairly well. Mm -hmm. But as we moved into monetary systems, we lost the ability to manage the commons well. And I think that's like the fundamental insight that our, the new generation has whether it's crypto, decentralization, Gen Z, I think that there's a growing understanding that managing the commons well is not equal to communism or um, antithetical to capitalism. See, I always think of it that like this. I think of the old 20th century economic system that came from Marx and you know whoever else, the American ideal, was actually a circle that were just different points on a clock. And so we were going around the clock. 12 o'clock is capitalism. And then you slowly get towards socialism at like three o'clock and then communism at six o'clock and then back to, I don't know what, and then finally back to capitalism. And so we were kind of fighting in the 20th century along this like linear flat dimension, which was really about allocation of resources and public private ownership. But at the end of the day, like super, super, super efficient capitalism would effectively be a form of communism because everyone would own 
the means of production to everything, which is a sort of like everybody having a Robin account and Robin Hood account and having a little stake of everything. Well, that's kind of what communism was yeah. meant to be, but which failed at doing. And so I, I don't see communism, capitalism as being the great fight that we thought it was during the 20th century. What we have to do is be able to like get off that flat linear service and be able to go in a different dimensional route to be able to think about how we build prosperity and abundance for ourselves and our communities and even our enemies by approaching things in an actually holistically different way. And that third dimension, that dimensionality where we get off of the flat linear fight between these two things that are essentially versions of the same thing is uh -huh. the great challenge of our generation to invent what that looks like and to build the economic models that, you know, honestly create uh, abundance. And I, and I fundamentally think that the way we have to do it is that we have to hack and destroy even the concept of money and potentially nationalism. Mm. Oh yeah. I'm reading a, I'm reading a book right now uh, called the sovereign individual that speaks uh, about um, it's kind of painting the future. It was written around 2000 and it's painting, painting the future um, that we're seeing uh, come forward right now. And one of them is the end of the nation state. Um, but nation but, states uh, are very powerful. They have militaries. And that's something that individuals don't have. Do, do you think, Ryan, that, that there's a way... Well, first of all, do you think there'll be conflict to try to prevent that birthing of a new system? And wh what do you think? Like, Do you think that's what we're going to see? Are we going to see the individual sovereign identity prevail? I, um, so yeah, so I, I'm really, I'm really fascinated about personal sovereignty and decentralization right now. If those were kind of like two themes. Um, and <clears throat> what I'm seeing, what I'm seeing with COVID is a lot of people going deep into fear and popping out the other side of fear. And I think that, um, that what we've seen through COVID and through 9-11 um, is that there has been an awareness of the, 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 the utility of fear the systemic use of fear for control. And I think that, uh, that there is an end game to that. There's an end game to that people will, people will, they can only be pushed so far and then they snap uh, because we have this survivalist instinct. Um, and, and so we can only we can only tolerate so much fear and then we release it and then we have this euphoric state of libera liberation and in in the balancing i think that we're going to see more and more people that aren't controlled by fear and that this will lead to uh, a further unraveling of these control based systems that don't serve us um and that we will be able to uh, to start to recognize both our personal sovereignty, but also our interdependence. 
and and that they're not mutually exclusive. And so this is like the the conversation of you know the commons versus uh, our our individual needs, and we can have both. Um, you know, it's like when you know living here in living here in Bali, I see that this is primarily a collectivist mindset, and and I see some suffering in the youth because everything is. I mean, there isn't there isn't as much space for the individual will, and then on the other extreme, I see what's happening in 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 America primarily, uh, where you know there are many people that are suffering and they're feeling lonely and disconnected and they're craving community and connection. And so, where's the balance point in that? Where can we have both community and connection? and the common good and also our own sovereign individual uh, needs met. Um, and this is the beauty of the, you know, the technologies that are emerging today is that they allow us to have both. Um, what does it look like when we, I mean, there is enough, there is enough uh, work and there are enough uh, people with skills and desire to fill those jobs. But what, you know, but the, the limiting factor is the economic system to be able to pay those people to do those jobs so that they can pay their bills and all those different things. But now we're starting to see with these new systems that we're creating, and there's still a lot more work to do in this. But, you know, when, we, when we're able to value all of our individual and even small incremental actions, um within uh within a uh a um some sort of a structured system then we're we're able to all kind of support one another and rise together it's kind of like i think of uh i think of you know when we um when we create businesses and organizations we hire we hire employees to do jobs but we're now moving more and more towards a gig economy where people are uh, people are getting paid to do incremental tasks. But what does it look like when you create a system where people can uh, also become micro owners in uh, in a number of different projects, whether they're projects that are focused on, um, well, ideally they're all focused on the common good. Um, but you know, if, uh, you're, you know, if, if you're creating hub culture and I'm creating uh, pure and there are all these people that connect with those visions, how can we all work together and create them together and share in the value together and become owners in a sense of each of these projects? Um, you know, if I, if, you know, if a logo needs to be created, that person becomes in their micro contribution of creating an, a logo, they become an owner. You know, and how do we reward uh, and create incent incentive structures where we can all, our, all our value can be, uh, can be recognized and, and channeled in, in, in positive directions? Yeah, I think that that's, that's really kind of deep. And it does uh, showcase where there's a lot of parallels between the work that you do, the work that I do, and the work in a lot of ways that everybody's doing, especially in this space. 
Before we wrap up, Ryan, you mentioned a couple mm -hmm. of projects that have caught your attention. Um, who do you think are the people or networks that are doing this kind of work that's aligned in this way in the kind of pure model that you're talking about, which you're developing for your own network, but who else, what other crypto projects are out there that you think are the building blocks of this new world that we're kind of discussing? Mm -hmm. The first that comes to mind is, is Polkadot. Um, that's been really interesting to watch. Uh, and there's been a lot of, seems like there's a lot of movement around, or there's a lot of uh, attraction around the DeFi or decentralized finance movement and using Polkadot as a platform um, or uh, protocol to build on. Um, and yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, yeah, so Polkadot would be one um, that I'm interested in. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of projects that um, still remain nameless uh, that I'm, that I'm tracking and they're basically groups of kind of really visionary um leaders that are uh that are coming together and creating like coalitions that are uh that are looking to create a number of different kind of systems change projects um and uh yeah and so again they're they're not nameless and uh i don't feel that i'm at liberty to speak of some of the individuals that are involved in them but you know, some very visionary entrepreneurs and creatives that are looking at these big, hairy problems and how do we build uh, deep tech projects um, to, uh, to move us in the right direction. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Summit Series. Um, you've mentioned, um, or... There's a, I mean, there's, you mentioned Nexus, which is another interesting project. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I'm, uh, that I've noticed through the Nexus community is there's, um, there's this conversation of the great wealth transfer and a lot of the, uh, the programming, uh, that comes with, uh, this group of very affluent and influential, individuals that are inheriting a tremendous amount of wealth that's stuck in an old system mindset of, of wealth pre preservation. And uh, on the topic of flow, um, there is an understanding that we need to be investing in more of these moonshots and we need to be uh, shifting this mindset of, of um, preserving capital to, you know, to uh, releasing capital and allowing it to flow because energy needs to flow. And when we trust that there's always enough coming uh, that we can allow it to flow. And so um, I think I'm, I'm interested in, in organizations and groups of people that are thinking about how do we allow for resources to flow in more efficient manners. And um, another one that's interesting is seeds. Um, 
I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Seeds, but that team is here in Bali as well. Yeah, um, and then they're working on Haifa Earth as well, which is a platform to uh, to essentially launch and, and manage the resources uh, of communities. Um, yeah. Great, great, great. Well, listen, this has been a great talk, Ryan, and I love the fact that we've been able to co-create a, a Hydra podcast for, for Pure and for the Chronicles. Is there anything else mm -hmm. you'd like to cover with me before we sign off from this episode? Uh, just just uh, excitement and appreciation for... Uh, for all the things that you're creating and this uh, this passion that uh, that drives you that um, that I yeah that feels familiar to me and because I feel the same way and and so I'm just grateful for our friendship. Likewise, likewise, and I guess I have to come visit you in Bali. Yes, you do. You're not very far away. Right. When, when the time is right, when the time is right. For Hub Culture and the Chronicles coming at you from our virtual platform, Emerald City, I'm Stan Stonaker with Ryan Fix from Pure, wishing you all a pathway toward flow and um, a reminder that everything is feedback. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Let us know in the comments below. And if you're interested in learning more about what we're up to, you can visit our website at pureproject.org. Thanks again, and looking forward to connecting soon.